What are your expectations when you come to chapel each Tuesday? Probably, I'm guessing that you're expecting to be inspired. And you get that, right? I'm guessing that you're hoping to be challenged. I think you get that too. You're hoping, you're expecting to be encouraged. I think you get that. How many of you, when you walk into chapel on Tuesday morning, though, expect to think? Like thinking, that's for the classroom, right? (laughs) Do you expect to have to think? I hope that you do. I hope that you do, because that's, you see, part of what we do in worship. We're not just inspired, we're not just challenged, we're not just encouraged. We also are asked to think. There's a lot of people in your world that are um, caught in the trap of bad ways of thinking, faulty ways of thinking. Um, Have you ever considered that part of your call to pastoral ministry, and all of you are called to pastoral ministry of one shape or another, you realize, have you ever considered that part of your call towards pastoral ministry is actually helping people to think well? Actually helping people to think better? challenging the prison house of their own faulty ways of thinking. Have you ever considered that that's a part of your call into pastoral ministry? Is not just to inspire, not just to encourage, not just to challenge, but actually to help people to think better. Hopefully you're getting some of that preparation here at Ozark Christian College. I know that you are, if you're paying attention. Faith Forum, Faith Forum exists for that purpose. Faith Forum exists to bring people onto this campus, people like Dr. Doug Guyavit. It exists to bring people on our campus that are going to challenge us to think well. And I'm just so glad every year that I get to play a small part in helping to put this together. We've had, through the years, we've had some great thinkers, some great speakers, some great authors that have come onto our campus and have led us and challenged us to think well about our faith. And so our offering today will go to help cover some of those financial costs involved in that. So I'm going to pray and then I'm going to introduce our speaker. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we thank you, uh, for giving us brains and I pray that you would help us to use them well. Um, God, more than that, I, I pray that, um, not only will we think well, but we'll also pastorally guide others in, in thinking well. Um, God, I thank you for this school, the opportunity to, to, to prepare and to learn. Um, I thank you for Dr. Guyvet and his ministry. Um, and I thank you for these students and the preparation that they're putting in every day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me say just a brief word about Dr. Guyvet, and then I'll hand the stage over to him. I introduced him yesterday. Many of you, most of you were there. Um, so I'll not say much more by way of introduction. Uh, but Dr. Guyvet has been teaching primarily in the area of philosophy and apologetics at Biola University um, for quite a while. Uh, I said 1999 yesterday. It's apparently 1993. Um, got his first teaching role. I learned this yesterday. Got his first teaching role at Taylor University in Indiana. Uh, some of you know where that is and what that is. Um, and uh, has had this, this ministry of teaching for quite some time in his life. One of the things that um, I was so pleased to see and learn yesterday, though, especially in our question-answer forum, is, is that uh, Dr. Guyvet, it's not just 
ivory tower philosophy for him. Um, he's really got a pastor's heart. Um, he's got a great commission heart. And that's really what motivates him in his ministry of philosophy. It's a different kind of ministry than a lot of us will end up having. Uh, but I so much appreciate a person who's dedicated his professional life to studying deeply and conversing people that oftentimes very much strongly disagree with him, uh, but doing it with a pastor's heart. And uh, so will you welcome Dr. Guyva to the stage? Thank you, Jenna, for the nice stand. And Chad, for that introduction. We're here to worship God in many ways, including with our minds. Can we do that? I teach philosophy at Biola University, Talbot School of Theology, and we have students in our home periodically, and the wives of some of our students will pull Diane, my wife, aside and ask her, so what is it like to live with the philosopher? And for them, it's a really serious question because they know that for the next 30, 40, 50 years, they're stuck living with a philosopher. And I've overheard her say, well, listen, let me just tell you what a philosopher is. A philosopher is someone who goes on and on and on and on and on about things that even he doesn't understand. And then he makes you feel like it's your fault, right? That might not be too far from the truth. A lot of people don't understand how you can be a Christian and a philosopher. A Christian philosopher sounds like an oxymoron, or some kind of moron anyway, right? You'll understand then a story that uh, I like to tell about traveling across the country. I was coming home on a trip, and it was a five-hour flight. I was tired. I'd already done my ministry for the last few days, and I thought, you know, I don't really want to talk to anybody. I'd like to be left alone. So I got my props out, including a very large book in philosophy, and I buried my face in that book so that the person who would come and sit next to me on the plane would not think that I was available for conversation. And the guy that came on was an especially talkative fellow. And during most of the flight, I could see that he was looking at what I was doing, and he was trying to get my attention, and he wanted to have a conversation. And things with the young lady on the other side of him weren't going any better. Well, finally, the flight attendant said, Sir, would you like some water? And he nudged me and he said, I think she's asking you a question. And I looked, but I was taking very good care not to make eye contact with this guy. Because then it would be over. And so I, I kind of looked carefully and I, and I reached for the water and I pulled it back. And he turned and he faced me and he said, Hey, what's that book you're reading? And I said, or no, actually, actually, it went worse than that. I, he said, what's that you're reading? Now, here's how I, this tells you something about my soul and the state of my soul at the moment. He said, so what's that you're reading? You know what I told him? I said, it's a book. I'm telling you, that's the truth. I said, it's a book. I thought that would be good enough. He said, well, what's it about? I said, philosophy. Now, that usually does it right there. It's like, it's over. Here's what he said. 
Really, I have always wanted to talk to a philosopher. So here I am, I'm stuck. I put my book away. I turned to him and I said, well, what would you like to talk about? And here's what he said. I have a friend at work who is a Christian. And we're friends. We get along. We have great conversations. But we really don't agree on much of anything. He believes in God. Of course, I don't. He believes in Jesus and the Bible and all that stuff. I don't believe that. But we get along. And he said, I wonder if you could give me some good ammunition. (laughs) All right. I said, well, I think you came to the right place. So then I asked him a question. I said, there are two questions I'd like to ask you. I said, you don't believe in God. He said, that's right. I said, well, then what do you believe instead? Now, that's a great question. It's a question you can ask those who who say, I don't believe what you believe. No matter what it is. Just ask the question, so what do you believe instead? Well, that's what I asked him. And you know what he said? He said, I believe in a higher power. So I said, okay, here's my second question. What is a higher power? And he said, well, he looked at me kind of like, well, you're a philosopher and you don't know what a higher power is. So he said, no, seriously, tell me, what is a higher power? And here's what he said. I'll never forget his words. They are seared in my memory. I haven't been able to forget them. He said, a a higher power is a power that is really high. And he used the hand motions and everything. And now everybody on the airplane is watching what's going on here. So I said, well, now actually I have a third question for you. Why do you believe in a higher power? And then as we talked, I began to unfold for him what I believe is a really strong case for Christian belief. And of course, he was a little surprised to hear a philosopher defend Christian belief. But I want to give you a method for doing that. Can we take time this morning just to do that. I'm going to pray and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you this morning that we can take time to uh, worship you with our minds, and I pray that that will be a uh, true of us this morning. And we pray that as we leave here, we'll, we will feel not only more uh, convinced of our own beliefs, but confident that we can share them with conviction and with success. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you a definition of Christian apologetics. Have you heard that terminology before, Christian apologetics? Maybe in a course, maybe you've had to suffer through a course with Chad Ragsdale or something, and he's talked about Christian apologetics, right? Now, I ask my students, how would you define Christian apologetics? And most of them will say, Christian apologetics is a rational defense of the Christian faith. And that's true, but it's only half the story. So, being paid to do what I do, I feel like I have to amplify. You know, if I'm going to if I'm going to earn my keep, I've got to make it more complicated. And so here is a more complicated definition of Christian apologetics, and there are three features of it I want to uh, notice together. First of all, the definition: Christian apologetics is the systematic formulation and the winsome presentation of a rational case for the Christian worldview and its associated form of life together with answers to objections. That takes us a little beyond the claim that it's a rational defense of the Christian faith. 
Now, let's just be sure we all get it, and let's read it together, okay, out loud. Christian apologetics is the systematic formulation and the winsome presentation of a rational case for the Christian worldview and its associated form of life together with answers to objections. Good. I think you've got that. Now, there are three things going on here that I call elements in our definition. And the first is planning and presenting, a systematic formulation and a winsome presentation. So formulation, presentation, planning and presentation. One I call, I call homework and the other one I call fieldwork. Right? Homework, you go to a conference, you go to chapel, you hear somebody speak on this, maybe you read a book, and that's preparation. That's your homework. But then you go out and you share the things that you've learned. You talk to people who don't know Christ, who have questions, and you respond to their questions and you offer them evidence. Now you're doing field work, planning and presentation. Belief and behavior. You see, when we defend the Christian faith, we have to understand that the Christian faith, the faith, is not just a bunch of things we believe. It's a belief set and a set of behaviors that go with believing those things. Now, we're not perfect, right? We falter and we need God's grace and we have to confess our sins, but we know that Christian faith includes not only believing certain things, but attempting to be like Christ. And so when we commend the faith to others, we're doing both. The third thing is commending and defending. We commend the faith, but we also defend it. We offer reasons to believe, and then we entertain objections. And we have to be prepared for both. So I want to talk about that with you today. A biblical basis for Christian apologetics. And very quickly, I want to run first through a few passages of Scripture. This is chapel, after all. And so even though I'm a philosopher, I have to spend some time, you know, quoting Bible verses. I say that kind of jokingly because I teach in a seminary and sometimes I wonder if my New Testament and Old Testament colleagues think we even read the Bible over there in the philosophy department. And we do, we do. We're very serious about that. And that's one of the things we defend. But notice this verse in Jude 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's you and me. We are within that community of faith called the saints. And Jude writes to his generation and all subsequent generations of Christians that we are to contend for the faith and to do so earnestly. This is a biblical ground for doing apologetics. This gives us a sense of the priority of apologetics in the plan of God. It's not a trivial thing. We need to roll our sleeves up and get serious about what we're doing. Another passage is 1 Peter 3.15. Here's a picture uh, depicting the Apostle Paul standing in the Areopagus and defending the faith. You can read about that in Acts chapter 17. But Paul, 
uh, uh, sorry, Peter the Apostle wrote these words in his first epistle. 3.15, ah, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to what? To make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I went to the University of Southern California for my PhD in philosophy, and one day I was standing in the library talking to the librarian, a friend of mine. We were in the philosophy library. A big hulking student came up to me, and he says, can I ask you a personal question? And I I wasn't really sure I wanted to be asked a personal question by a total stranger in front of my friend. But I said, sure. He said, are you a Christian? I don't get asked that very often. But he said, are you a Christian? And I said, well, yes, I am. What about you? And he said, well, I don't know what to think about Christianity. But he said, I just had this sense that you're a Christian and I'm looking for a Christian that I could talk to. And it turned out that he was an undergraduate student who played on the defensive side of the USC Trojans football team. Could explain why he was so big. Or maybe his size could explain why he was on the team. I'm not sure which. And he said, I'm in a class with you and and it's a cross-listed class with undergraduates and graduate students and you're always up there in front, you know, and I'm sitting in the back row. There's no reason why you would recognize me or know who I am. But I said, he said, I know who you are. You're a graduate student in philosophy. And he said, I could not for the life of me understand how you could come across as a Christian in a class like that when I knew that you were working on a PhD in philosophy. And I said, well, how did you know that? And he said, there was just something different about the way you conducted yourself, about the way you asked questions, the way you asked questions, the way you interacted with the other students. It just struck me that that might be true about you. And now he had questions. This is almost exactly what Peter is saying. He didn't come up to me and say, sir, would you please give me a reason for the hope that is in you? Right? But he was asking the same question. And we get asked this question in a multitude of ways, and we need to be prepared for everyone who asks. But we have to do it with gentleness and respect, Peter says. Uh, Paul told Timothy in his second epistle, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may uh, perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Right? So the goal there is to help a person find Jesus to be rescued from peril, the snare of the devil. And if we keep in mind what our goal is, then that will uh, control how we go about it. It will regulate the tone. It will regulate the attitude, the the posture in which we give our arguments and evidence. Some people think that because uh, we're to be gentle towards non-believers, we should never get involved in arguments. But he's not saying that. We're to correct those who are in opposition, but there's a way to do it. But sometimes we're not very good at that. Look at this picture. If that's our posture, that's not very good. We don't want to be screaming in somebody's ear or we're liable to get a reaction that looks something like that. Bernard of Clairvaux, a great Christian 
father said this, There are many who seek knowledge for the sake of knowledge. That's curiosity. There are others who desire to know in order that they may be known. That's vanity. But there are those who seek knowledge in order to edify others. That is true love. Can you, understand, can you appreciate that? That acquiring knowledge can be good for the sake of other people? It's not just for you. It's certainly not just for a diploma. And let me tell you what, if you devote yourself to the study of the evidence and the rationality of Christian belief, you will not have an exam. The final exam will not happen at the end of the course. It's going to be prepared by the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit makes um, appointments between you and non-believers. You see, God will then entrust to you because you have prepared the task of sharing with other people. And your knowledge will be a ministry to them. It will edify others, and that is a form of love. Growing in knowledge can be used as you love people. Now, what we really want to present is called the gospel, and we mean by that the good news. But it's not really news for us, is it? I mean, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you've heard the gospel, you've responded to the gospel, and it's not really news. In many respects, it's kind of old news. And sometimes like, it's old news. And that's not a good thing, right? Because we have to have a sense of the novelty of Christian belief for other people for whom it will be news when they hear it. And I like to uh, describe the Christian's conception of the good life as the challenge to live out the gospel and the good news because it has implication for all of life. But when we talk to other people, our task is to present the gospel to those for whom it is news in such a way that they will see it to be the good news that it is. Unfortunately, sometimes when we share our faith, it's news all right, but it comes across to them like bad news. And we want them, if possible, to see it to be the good news that it is. And uh, in order to live the good life and to present this as gospel, you have to have good beliefs. And so I like to ask people, Christians and non, are you good at believing the things you believe? Are you good at that? Well, now, when it comes to building a case for Christian belief and making an argument, presenting evidence, and so forth, I've organized this into four tasks, four different things that we try to do. The first is to initiate the case for what I call brute theism. Now, yesterday I defined theism as the belief that there is a God who created the universe and sustains it in existence. And this is a God who is all-powerful, omnibenevolent, that is, perfectly morally good, omniscient, concern for human beings, and a few other things as well. That's theism. But brute theism is the view that there is some sort of God, but maybe we don't know much about what God is like. And it's a kind of convenient belief in God because there's no obligation, there's no responsibility. It's kind of like just a higher power. This third question that I asked, I asked this fellow passenger was, why do you believe in a higher power? He said, well, look out the window. I thought, well, what, I'm going to find the answer when I look out the window? And then he said, and look down. He said, how do you explain the existence of the world? 
I said, well, that's a pretty good question. So he thought that trying to explain the existence of the universe was a reason to believe in a higher power. And do you know what? He was right. But he was a brute theist. That's as far as it would go. That's as far as it would go. That's a kind of limited conception of what God is like. And it's good to get people to the point where they believe that much at least, at the very least. Now, Jesus said in John 14, 1, you believe in God, believe also in me. You see, believing that there's a God is not enough. We need to be believing in a God who has noticed the human situation, is aware of what's happened in human history, our plight, our predicament, our condition. This God is aware of this and, and, and wants to do something about it, cares about it, wants to save us from our predicament, and has the resources to do it. This is a God, then, who knows, cares, and will do something. And for that, we need revelation from God. And so we try to move people from brute theism towards what I call revelational theism. It's a theism which holds that God doesn't just exist in an indifferent posture towards humanity, but takes a real interest and wants to reveal His good will for our salvation. So we have to help them get to that point. But then that's not enough either because there are different religious traditions that all affirm the existence of God. But they're not Christian. That's what makes them different. They might believe that God has produced a revelation. That's true of the Jewish tradition. That's true of the Islamic tradition. But for the Jews, it's the Hebrew Bible and no New Testament. They don't regard Jesus Christ as the Son of God or the source of our salvation. Muslims don't believe that Jesus Christ was crucified. He was just a great prophet, caught up into heaven before he died, before dying, without dying. And their revelation claim is that God produced, dictated really to the prophet Muhammad, the Quran, which is a completely different revelation claim. So we believe that God has produced a revelation in the person of Jesus and in the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. So we have to have some way of moving people beyond just revelational theism towards Christian theism, the third task on the screen. And of course, it's not enough to reason and to argue. We also want to close the case with an invitation to actually believe what we recommend. Now, I suggest that to execute these four steps, we need to organize our case into specific um, moves, specific moves, a method. And uh, this is kind of like many other things. We have any musicians here, okay? Um, okay, we have a few mu musicians. Anybody ever compose music? Okay, good. We've got some people like that. Now, what do you do when you compose music? Well, in effect, what you do is you take notes. Now, these are abstract objects. They're not things that even have physical existence, right? But you think about what the notes are, and then you organize them into a sequence. And when they're played in that sequence, you get music, right? That's how you get music. So you have two components, the notes themselves, those are the ingredients of your composition, and then this sequencing of them. And that's kind of like a recipe for, make, for composing music. Now, if it sounds like I'm talking about, I must say, that's about all I can say 
about it. I don't have any real musical talent. However, I do have some talent when it comes to baking because I have baked many, many, many chocolate chip cookies. All right? Now, that's about all I've baked, but it's good enough for me. And even though I've done it many times, I still have to look on the package uh, with uh, Nestle's, you know, semi-sweet morsels, you know, chocolate morsels. But what does it say on the back? For those who need instructions for baking the cookies, what does it tell you? What's on the back of the, of the package? It's a recipe. And what does every recipe include? A list of ingredients and what else? Instructions for combining the ingredients, right? What do you do with the ingredients? Every recipe does that. Gives you a list of ingredients and a, rest, a, 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 a set of instructions for organizing those into something that will ultimately result in what looks like what's on the package. That's what you hope, right? So, you know, you've got this beautiful picture of a chocolate cake on the Betty Crocker mix box, and you hope, you hope that it's going to look like that and taste better than what it's printed on, right? Okay. So, everything that you bake requires these ingredients and this set of instructions, right? You can't just get the ingredients and then step back and hope that cookies will appear. Right? And you can't get the ingredients and then combine them in any random way, arbitrary way that you like and get the same result. Right? There's an order to things. Well, that's how it is with building the case for Christian belief. There are ingredients and a way to sequence them, to organize them, to, to put them in their proper order so that you have a maximally persuasive case for Christian belief. And the first step in my approach is to offer reasons to believe that God exists. Can you read that? Let me put that up there for you. Step number one. I've got some help. Uh, good. Can you read that all right? Okay. Offer reasons to believe that God exists. That's where we start. That's brute theism. We give people reasons to believe that God exists. And in a moment, I'm going to give you a couple of examples of ways to do that. The second step is to develop a richer understanding of God's character and purposes on the basis of available evidence. So, after we've made an initial basic case for God's existence, we add in to the mix more evidence for God's existence that also tells us more about what God is like. So you see, some evidences tell us a little bit about what God is like, and then other evidences fill in with greater detail. We'll try to illustrate that by looking at these arguments. There are many different arguments for the existence of God. We can call them theistic arguments. Uh, one kind of argument is a cosmological argument, and there are various versions of those. There are design arguments, there are moral arguments, and there are many other kinds of arguments for God's existence. Now, notice the arrows. The arrows on this diagram illustrate the relationship that I envision between these arguments. 
that it makes more sense when you build your case to start with a cosmological argument and then move to the next kind of argument. There's a natural logic to go from a cosmological argument to a design argument, and then from a design argument to a moral argument, and so forth. Now, I can't take the time that I would take during a semester of teaching to explain what I mean by that and then to give you examples of of all these different kinds of arguments, give you two or three cosmological arguments or one or two design arguments or what have you. Can't do that with the time we have here today. But I want to uh, illustrate how one kind of cosmological argument actually works. And, of course, this can be uh, developed in great detail. You can argue about it. You can defend it. You can answer objections to it. But today I just want to give you the bare outline of the argument. And it's developed in three steps. Okay? Three steps. The first step is to establish that the universe had a beginning. That's the first step. The second step is to demonstrate that the beginning of the universe has a cause. And the third step is to show that the cause of the beginning of the universe is God. So how does this look when you lay it out in skeletal form? Well, step one, the universe had a beginning. First premise, the present universe consists of a series of past events, right? The present universe consists of a series of past events, one after the other leading up to the present event. Second, the series of past events cannot be infinite. It has to have a starting point. Now, it's fun to illustrate this so that people understand what this means. And if I had time, I'd have everybody over here in this section stand up. We can't do this, but I'd have everybody in this section stand up and sit down one after the other until we get to the front row, starting in the back. And there's a finite number of people who would sit down, and it would take a certain amount of time, and it would be a finite amount of time. But it would have a beginning and an end. And we could include these people over here because they don't want to be left out, right? Then we could add these people in and let's say, let's start over here, go all the way across, have everybody sit down one after the other until everybody sits down. We've lengthened the series of events, but still we have a beginning and an end. You with me? Now we do the same thing with this group and this group and here. And finally, we add everybody that's up in the balcony, the ones that are updating their Facebook pages. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Right? I'm kidding because you don't use Facebook anymore, right? <laughs> what is it, Instagram today? What's it going to be tomorrow? I don't know. We add everybody in the room up and we start like we did before. Over here at the beginning, we go all the way through. We have people sit down one after the other. We finally get everybody seated. It has a beginning. It has an end, right? Now think of that as the temporal sequence, the sequence of time making up the history of past events. You with me? Now I want you to imagine that there are infinitely many people out in the parking lot here at OCC who want to get in on this experiment. And so we say, okay, come on in, right? And they come in, and then we start over again, and we have them all, everybody sit down one after the other. Now, when will the last person in this infinite set of people sit down? Answer? Never, because there is no last person, right? So you see... The, the history of the, of the universe can be made up only of finitely many events because otherwise 
you couldn't get started or at least you could never reach this terminus. You could go either direction and have that problem. An infinite series of past events cannot be infinite. And so the universe had a beginning. It just follows. Now that's step one. What about step two? That the beginning of the universe has a cause. Well, here's an argument for that. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. What did we just learn about the origin of the universe? It began to exist. So what follows? The universe has a cause. Things don't just pop into existence willy-nilly out of nothing. When I was a university student, again at USC, one of my teachers was teaching a course on the metaphysics of causation. If you can believe this, we had a whole course analyzing the concept of a cause. I guess that's what you do in graduate school, right? So I took this course with him, and uh, one day a friend of mine during the course was giving a th- uh, uh, describing a theory about how causation might work where the thing that does the causing happens with the event at the same time as the event. And he was developing this theory and we were kicking it around and talking about it and the teacher said, oh, that's interesting. And then I attacked the view. Did it gently. He's a friend of mine, another Christian in fact. And I said, well, here's what I think might be a problem for that view. And the teacher liked that. You know, that's really good thinking. You've come up with a problem for that view. And I said, but it seems to me that you might be able to rescue that view if you said that for every event that happens, there's some outside cause that's one cause for everything, and it is simultaneous with everything that happens in the temporal series. You don't have to worry about the details of that. And here's what my teacher said. He clenched his fist, he walked up to me, and said to me, Do you mean God? Now, you probably wouldn't have any of your teachers here do that. And I said, well, I'm, <laughs> what I'm saying is, it's, it's a metaphysical thesis, right? And I'm not even defending that view. He said, well, we've got to get back to the topic here. Let's go on. We get near the end of the semester and we're running out of things to talk about and now we're down to first cause. And here's what he says. Apparently, evidently, the universe just popped into existence out of nothing. And I wanted to stand up, clench my fist, walk over to him and say, popped? Do you mean popped? Now, will you take God over popped or popped over God? I didn't do that, and I did pass the course, okay? Now, if I had done that, I don't know what the result would have been. But you see, what begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, and so it has a cause. And the story I've just told brings us to step three. The cause of the beginning of the universe is an agent... Because, after all, the universe was caused either by an agent or by another event. But it could not have been caused by another event. Remember, the first e- there has to be a first event. The first event can't be caused by another event. The only alternative is an agent who is capable of doing that, has the resources to do that. Therefore, the universe was caused by an appropriate sort of agent, which we call God. So there's a cosmological argument for you for the existence of God. Now, there are other kinds of arguments, like moral arguments for God's existence, and I describe uh, moral arguments of various kinds when I do debates with atheists in universities, for example. Here are three problems for an atheist who believes that there is such a thing as moral truth. 
What about moral responsibility? What does it mean to be morally obliged or obligated to do anything if there is no God? Who provides the authority for the things that you do so that if you do them, you've done something morally wrong? That's a problem. What about the problem of moral awareness? How do you even know what is the right thing to do? Do you think there's disagreement in the world today about the right thing to do? A lot of our problems in the world today have to do with disagreement about what is morally right and morally wrong. But if there's a God who is the source of moral knowledge, then this objective fact about morality can make sense because we can either get it right or get it wrong when we disagree and the measuring stick for rightness and wrongness will be God's own will for us. And then there's a really interesting problem of freedom. Do you know when you act morally and you're responsible for your actions, you have to be acting freely. You have to be acting freely. Some people uh, commit a crime. They go to trial. But the reason why they're not found guilty is because of the insanity plea. Right? The insanity plea. How does that work? That works because the argument made in defense of that person is that this person does not have full mental capacities to make good moral decisions and didn't know that she was doing the wrong thing. Got a terrible result, but you can't hold somebody like that responsible because they were not really acting freely. Now, I don't know what you think about that, and maybe that works in some cases, but in most cases, we hold somebody responsible because we know that they acted with knowledge and with freedom. And that makes them responsible. So we have a moral argument here which says there is no moral responsibility if there is no moral freedom. But now where do you get moral freedom if our universe is determined by all kinds of physical antecedents, right, that determine one thing that happens in the universe after another? And that's really the evolutionary story. The, the, the naturalist scientist or the scientific naturalist believes that everything is predetermined by sort of the arrangement of the original stuff of the universe. And you can't get freedom out of that. So that's a problem. And so now we come to um, the third step. As I said, there are eight. The first was to offer reasons to believe that God exists and then to thicken the case for theism with more evidence as we've done. Now then, step three is to identify features of the human condition that are relevant to the question of God's existence, nature, and purposes for creation. Yesterday we talked about the problem of evil. There are many aspects of the human condition, but let's just take that one. What is evil? Why is there evil? What can be done about evil in the world? You know, it's not just Christians that have to have something to say about that. Atheists, naturalists, have to have something to say about whether there's evil in the world, if there is, what it is, and what can be done about it. These are features of the human condition. Now we ask, given that God exists, what are we supposed to make of that aspect of the human condition? We're obviously in trouble, right? Things are not as they should be. So where does God fit into that? And a lot of people say... Well, that's evidence that God does not exist. What I say is, that's evidence that God is a being that can overcome that problem. So we consider features of the human condition so that then, number four, 
we can expect a special divine revelation that would address those needs. You see, if this is what God is like, and this is how things are in our situation, doesn't it make sense to think that this God, being like this, would observe, notice, care, have the resources to do something about our problem? And so, this combination of considerations, like the combining of of ingredients or notes in a musical composition, give us a reason to expect that God would produce a revelation. And so then, step number five, we start to look around us in the history of world religions and, and compare religious traditions that claim that God has produced a revelation. We look to see what that might be. And of course, Christianity is one of them. So how do we know which revelation is the correct one? How do we know which revelation is God's own revelation? We need some indicator, some sign, some way of knowing that this is God's revelation and not some counterfeit. And for that, we go to step six, to present evidence of miraculous confirmation of the Christian revelation claim. See, why is that significant? That's significant because in the case of Christianity, we have a miracle called the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus. And the historical evidence for the, for, the, for the occurrence of the resurrection of Jesus gives us a way of telling whether or not the Christian revelation claim is authentic or a counterfeit. And it gives us a reason to believe it's authentic because if the resurrection happened, then God did it. It's obviously a miracle. And why would God do it other than to vouch for Jesus Christ as his authoritative representative for humanity. The resurrection does that for us. Now, many people uh, might believe these things and be persuaded by your case going from step one through step uh, six, but they might have difficulty believing what you tell them. You know, I've lectured to uh, university audiences where they'll listen politely and people will say, you know, you make a strong case. But I don't believe it. I don't know. I don't have any more objections. We've talked those through. But what do I do? What do I do? I I find myself with agnosticism still. I just don't know how I'm supposed to get myself to believe this stuff. Evidence hasn't been enough for me. And that's where step seven comes in, where we encourage what I call a devotional experiment that may lead to genuine faith in Jesus Christ. What do I mean by a devotional experiment? It's really simple. Ask yourself what it would mean if you did believe it. What would you do? How would you live? What choices would you make if you actually believed the Christian story, the Christian gospel? What would that look like if you actually lived as if you believed it? And then go do it. You see, you've got every reason to believe it's true. Your problem is just getting yourself to believe it. And sometimes what it takes to get yourself over the hump so that you actually believe what you know you should believe is to practice what you would do if you believed it. And that's the devotional experiment. Now, if you do that, we have the promise of Scripture that God will respond by revealing himself to you. I've got two verses you can write down, Jeremiah 29 and Luke 11, if you want to investigate this idea of a devotional experiment. But we come then to step number eight, the final step. 
anticipate a distinctively Christian type of religious experience that would confirm one in genuine faith in Jesus Christ. You see, if you perform the experiment long enough, and if Christianity is true, then in seeking God, you will be found by Him. You notice the way I put that? I don't say, if you seek God, you'll find Him. I say, if you seek God, you will be found by Him. That is to say, you will experience some kind of encounter with God that will confirm you in Christian belief. So these are eight steps. We could take a whole semester in a course like the one I teach at Biola, going through these steps individually and examining the different evidences. But remember the four tasks. Initiate the case for brute theism. Develop the case for revelational theism. Refine the case for Christian theism and then close the case with an invitation. I have a quote for the screen. Life is filled with opportunities for you to see your beliefs reinforced by actions that are in accordance with your beliefs. You see, when you believe something and you practice what you believe, the conviction that these things are true is strengthened. And if your conviction is that Christianity is true and that people need to hear this gospel and be brought to faith, you will have opportunities to see your own beliefs reinforced through the action of evangelism and apologetics, which is in accordance with your own beliefs. Now again, I like to say to people, what is it that you no longer believe? I've had Christian students come to me and say, you know, I have doubts now. I'm not sure what to believe. Or they'll say, I, I don't believe what I used to believe. And I'll ask them, so what is it that you no longer believe? Sometimes it's one particular thing that doesn't upset the whole apple cart, but they're afraid now that they can't believe any of it. And then there's the question, what do you believe instead? And always the question, why do you believe the things that you believe? There's a question here for everyone in this audience. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, no matter where you are in your Christian faith, there is a question here for you on the screen. I want to close with this quotation from Blaise Pascal, who said this, Men despise religion. They hate it, and they're afraid it may be true. The cure for this is first to show that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. Next, make it attractive. Make good men wish it were true, and then show that it is. Thank you.